Hi there, it's Anita Johnson. And just a quick request before we get started. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you catch our podcast. That helps other people to find us. And of course, give us a high rating. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. Today on Making Contact, we are so excited to share an episode from our brand new partner, the Queen's Memory Podcast. This show highlights voices from the most diverse county in America, Queens, New York. In this episode, we are going to hear stories from a neighborhood known as Little Manila. This Filipino community dates back to the 1970s. You go to the restaurants there. It's where you can send money back home to the Philippines. Reminded me of Avenida in Manila. So my son said, it's like we're not even in America, mommy. And while Little Manila offers a home away from home for Filipino immigrants, some say it doesn't receive the same resources as other communities in Queens. We have other communities that are fairly recent immigrants to Queens, to New York City, to America. And they have community centers. They have all these big events that politicians go to. I mean, can you imagine it's 2021 And now we're getting a sign that says something about our heritage. I mean, it's very, very lowball. In the second half of the show, we're going to hear from Filipinos engaged in care work, like nursing or childcare. There's a stereotype that women from the Philippines are naturally nurturing. We're going to talk about how harmful that stereotype can be. Oh, nice community. You're Filipino. You're so nice. Yeah. (laughs) So give us the nice thing. Put it in paper. All this on today's Making Contact. I'm Amy Gastelum. This episode was produced in English. If you want to listen in Tagalog, go to our website, radioproject.org, to find the link. Gawa sa English itong episode. Kung gusto niyong makinig sa Tagalog, mahahanap niyong link sa aming website, radioproject.org. Most Filipinos living in the U.S. call California home, but of the over 200,000 Filipinos living in New York City, more than half live in Queens. Today, we're going to hear stories from Little Manila in Woodside, Queens, a neighborhood dotting Roosevelt Avenue that stretches between 63rd and 70th Streets. First up, we have an ode to the area. It's shops, it's politics, it's art. This episode was produced and hosted by Rosalind Tordesillas of Queens Memory Podcast, Let's listen. So as soon as I moved to New York City, I looked for the community that was familiar to me. Then, you know, I found Woodside. It's, it's my community for sure. <laughs> I claim it. <laughs> you cannot refuse Woodside. <laughs> you go to the restaurants there. It's where you can send money back home to the Philippines. I would see people who got married in other states. And they're still in their gown and go there just to get food. It reminded me of Avenida in Manila. So my son said, it's like we're not even in America, mommy. I think that's when it started, 10 years ago. 
Now, I think when I heard Little Manila, I'm not even sure if that came from the Filipino community. That might have come from <laughs> outside the community. And I think people would just kind of say it under their breath, Little Manila, as a joke. And then it became serious. Uh, a lot of Filipino organizations, we began adopting that. And they were just like, yeah, Little Manila, it is. And then here we are. <laughs> The neighborhood rose up around a roughly seven-block stretch under the seven train in Woodside. You'll know you're there when the doors open on the elevated train platform and you smell the Filipino barbecue. Down on the street, you may hear bits of Tagalog, Bisaya, Ilocano, and other Philippine languages. How did this area become Little Manila? The community here in Woodside was not like this. Uh, always. When I was growing up, gosh, probably until I was about 12 or so, the street where the store was on was Irish and Italian. Maybe one other Filipino family on that block uh, or two. Now it's like <laughs> uh, Filipinos are everywhere. That was Joe Castillo. His family owns Phil Am Food Mart, the oldest surviving Filipino grocery in Woodside. His parents opened it in 1976. There were one or two other Filipino businesses back then, but not much of a community. Here's his mom, Zenaida Castillo, at the store. She goes by Ida. My cousins told us Queens is a haven for Filipinos, and most of the, uh, I would say, dignitaries from the consulate lives in Elmhurst, Queens. But we cannot afford the rental there. We first started five doors away from here. We rented a place for five years, and then we got this. This is the corner building on Roosevelt Avenue and 70th Street. The location has served them well for another important reason. You find a hospital, you'll always find Filipino nurses and doctors. They knew that there was a small community of healthcare workers because of Elmer's Hospital down the street. Other businesses followed, and they fed off each other's successes. Across 70th Street from Philam is another longtime draw, Ihawan Restaurant. Folks would come for a meal and then stock up. From Connecticut, Massachusetts, Jersey, Philadelphia. Oh, the most popular things, I would say, are, you know, like the noodles, the pancit, the canton, the fish sauce, the vinegar and the toyo. And not just food. In non-travel restricted times, Ida says she'd go back to the Philippines every three months for stock. For the holidays, she'd bring back parols, traditional star-shaped Christmas lanterns made of delicate materials like Japanese paper or kapis shell. I brought hundreds and hundreds. I put it out September. It did not even reach December. Staying connected to the Philippines was the whole purpose of the store. That permeated Joe's childhood, too. Uh, behind the cash register, like underneath, there's shelves where we keep paper bags and stuff. I would take naps in there the, as a preschooler. I joke around that it's a second sibling because I know my parents consider it like another child of their own. The difference that I grew up in versus some of the other Philam kids that were my age, by virtue of the store, I was surrounded by the language and the food and the culture. Phil M is an anchor for the Woodside community. Now, Woodside is an anchor for Filipinos to stay close to their heritage throughout New York City. Because of people from the outer boroughs or even Long Island, they see that there are Filipinos here. They're like, I can open up 
a restaurant in my neighborhood. So I think that it's great because like what started in this neighborhood has been able to like be brought to other places. While Joka Stila finds the way Woodside has evolved inspiring, Stephen Raga thinks it's not changing fast enough. It is great that we have long-lasting establishments, but a lot of other communities get more resources than the Filipino community. Way disproportionate. He's executive director of Woodside on the Move, a social service nonprofit. Now, he's running to represent this district in the state assembly. Filipinos are, what, the top three in the country in terms of Asian American population. One of the biggest in the city and the state in terms of AAPI population. We have other communities that are fairly recent immigrants to Queens, to New York City, to America. And they have community centers. They have all these big events that politicians go to. I mean, can you imagine it's 2021 and now we're getting a sign that says something about our heritage? I mean, it's very, very low ball. The sign he's talking about is a street sign. Last year, the New York City Council co-named the southwest corner of Roosevelt and 70th Street Little Manila Avenue. It's a small nod, given how long activists like Stephen have been working for recognition. In the last elections, Stephen ran for city council, but did not win. He's clearly frustrated at the community's lack of a political voice. And that goes back to the bottom line of us not taking a proactive, unified effort to not even ask for things, but let us be heard. We are not on anyone's radar at all. And if we're not on anyone's radar, if we ask for help, who's going to defend us? Hey, it's Amy. I want to jump in and say that since this story was originally aired, Stephen Raga actually won a race for the New York State Assembly. And so now he represents District 30, which encompasses Little Manila and beyond. Okay. Now back to Rosalind. Stephen knows the community can make itself heard. In 2016, they battled a move to change zoning in the neighborhood to allow a megachurch to expand. That would have displaced residents and small businesses. They formed the Coalition to Defend Little Manila to make their case. The amazing part was for some of them in the room, it's the first time they heard a Filipino speak. That was the first time we went for it and we defended our community and we were successful and the project never came back. To make sure their community is heard and seen, an activist arts group painted a mural where most folks enter Woodside. It features the word Mabuhay. That's the best word that you could ever say to anybody. It's one of the best, uh, I would say, wish that you could ever say. The word greets you when you exit the Flushing-bound 7 train at 69th Street. It blares in bright yellow on a sky-blue field on the wall of Amazing Grace Restaurant, evoking the taste and fragrance of home, calamansi fruits, and sampaguita blossoms adorn the word. Oh, mabuhay. It just, to me, means welcome. <laughs> you go inside, there is welcome. Welcome to Little Manila. Mabuhay. Welcome to Philippines. So mabuhay. Many will say it means welcome because anyone arriving in the Philippines will see it plastered all over the airport. But it's so much more than that. It's an all-purpose greeting, cheer, or wish for the future. At its most literal, it simply means live. Today is also Philippines Independence Day. And on this day of freedom... On June 12, 2020, they unveiled the mural with great fanfare by pandemic standards. Woo! 
Jacqueline Reyes designed the mural and co-founded Little Manila Queens Bayanihan Arts. The group builds community through public art. When I meet Filipinos outside of New York, whether they're from like Chicago or from California or from Manila, they all know about the mural and it means a lot that that resonated with people. Some like Filipino-Americans um, didn't even realize there was a little Manila. They were just like, wow, look, look at these Filipinos. So um, the fact that the mural was able to draw attention to the community, that was kind of the point. You're listening to Making Contact and an episode from our new podcast partner, Queen's Memory. We are so excited to have them join our lineup and we hope you enjoyed the first half of the show. In the second half, we are going to hear from Filipino nurses in Queens. Lots of Filipinos do frontline care work in New York City and have been deeply affected by the COVID-19 crisis. If you want to learn more or you want to listen to the episode in Tagalog, go to our website, radioproject.org. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We want to hear from you. Okay. Back to the show. In their work to create signs, Stephen and Jacqueline are doing more than just increasing visibility for the Filipino community in Woodside. They're also calling attention to the community's own needs. For her next project, Jacqueline is working on a monument to honor the care work many Filipinos are engaged in, and also to bring awareness to the care they deserve in return. We wanted to, to find somebody who could represent Filipinos in this current moment of like hyper-globalization, migration, and all of that. That's artist Jacqueline Reyes again, talking about their next project, a monument to Melchora Aquino, known as Tandang Sora. She's actually a very important figure for a lot of Filipina activists. During the 19th century Philippine Revolution against Spain, Tandang Sora took care of the revolutionaries. She fed and sheltered them and nursed their injuries. She was so important to the movement, she was deported to Guam by the Spanish authorities. So reading about her being exiled reminded me a lot of conversations I had with domestic workers or lower wage care workers from the Philippines who are here by themselves. And in a way, it is kind of like exile. More significantly to Filipino immigrants, Tandang Sora's revolutionary work was care labor. So many Filipinos work in child and elder care as well as in health care. That is a form of labor that we should be recognizing more of. If you've spent time in a U.S. hospital, maybe you've noticed a lot of Filipino nurses. When the U.S. colonized the Philippines at the turn of the last century, it instituted nursing training. Since then, it's been recruiting Filipinos to fill healthcare labor shortages. Nursing and other healthcare work has been a major pathway for the Filipino diaspora. That career path gets passed down to later generations. Today, one in four adults of Filipino descent in the New York, New Jersey area works in healthcare. Potri Ranka Maniskiano Nur is an artist, an activist, and a nurse. When she applied for work in the U.S., she asked for the mission statements of prospective hospitals. And I fell in love with the mission of Mother Cabrini, uh, serving the immigrants. She ended up at Cabrini Medical Center, named for the sainted Italian-American nun. She came to the U.S. in the 80s at the height of the AIDS epidemic. 
there was a lot of fear and stigma around that disease. So caring for patients with AIDS fell to Filipino nurses. We don't know that that's already racial discrimination in matters of labor assignment. Some patients would even say to her, I want a white nurse. (laughs) Potri thinks overt discrimination is less common these days, thanks to nurses' unions. But nurses from the Philippines are still assigned more often to bedside care. Potri felt called to it and added her own special touch. When maximum doses of sedatives weren't enough for suffering patients, she'd sing them to sleep. Everything is fine. And I want you to sleep well tonight. Close your eyes. She says before she finished the song, they were asleep. Many Filipino nurses take pride in their reputation for extreme dedication. That commitment was tested when COVID hit. Gemma Balagtas is a nurse at Elmhurst Hospital Center. 12 hours kang nakabalot na hindi ka makahinga. 12 hours, you're wrapped up tight in gear. You go to the bathroom for a minute just to take it off and take a breath. Then someone codes. You go to help and before you're done, another room codes. Coding is hospital speak for when a patient's heart and breathing stops. A whole team rushes to revive them. In February 2020, Gemma was the first in her unit to catch COVID. She was out for 18 days then returned to work in time for the worst days of New York's first surge. Elmhurst Hospital had become the epicenter of the epicenter. Remembering that hellish time still overwhelms her two years later. We'd really cry from that experience. It's, it's like nothing else. Especially when you see the patient, they were so strong. You were talking. You look for them later and someone says, oh, they're in the ICU. Then they're gone. They were healthy. You were just talking. Her first night back from quarantine, Gemma says patients were coding left and right. It was gutting work. As she struggled to keep up, she got chest pains herself. She'd just had COVID. By the end of her overnight shift, she felt done. Leaving the hospital that morning, she decided she wouldn't come back. The streets were empty. Then, a bus pulled up. She and the driver made eye contact. He waved at me and gave me a thumbs up. He was saying, thank you, thank you. So I was touched. He didn't even know me. He was thanking me and blowing his horse. Then I told myself, okay, I'll go back to work later. It took such a little gesture to pull her back from the brink. Some recent data shows that compared with their white counterparts, Filipinos are less likely to leave nursing jobs. They're also more likely to remain in direct care. That may help explain why disproportionate numbers of them fell to COVID. Only 4% of registered nurses are of Filipino descent. Yet, they accounted for about a third of all COVID-related RN deaths in the first year of the pandemic. Maybe they are trained to be more dedicated. Or maybe they just have fewer options. Because many Filipinos are in care work, people may stereotype them as naturally nurturing or especially suited to service. So it's just accepted that they regularly go above and beyond. Does Jacqueline, the artist, think that glorifying heroic caregiver Tandang Sora with a monument reinforces this stereotype? 
we are products of these larger policies that kind of perpetuate that sort of thinking. That's why it's good to kind of make art about it and try to get more of that nuanced conversation happening because hopefully then we can show that these women are very complex, show that this uh, servile expectation is kind of imposed, actually. I personally think that if Filipino women are busy doing the care work, that we should just reciprocate some of that care back. What Poetry received back was not care, but pain. That was the time the president mismo is racist, no? na tumaas ang, ang, ang hate crime because it was a time when Trump called the COVID Chinese virus. In August 2021, Potri was handing out free masks on the subway. She offered them to a couple. The man grabbed the masks. Mind your own business, Ching! Go home to your dirty country. The woman hit her over and over. Potri counted more than 20 blows. She wanted to fight back. If I'll her knee, she'll fall down and she's gonna have a fracture. But the couple had a child in a stroller. Go will take care of this kid if I'll fracture her mom. She says that's Filipino's attitude. You're getting beat up and you're still focused on care. Potri may buy into the belief that Filipinos can be especially caring, but she doesn't think they should be downtrodden. You're all nice community. You're Filipino. You're so nice. Yeah, so give us the nice thing, put it in paper. If the community wants support written into law, Jacqueline and other activists are working to ensure it's heard. Recently, they campaigned to redraw the voting district lines in the Filipino neighborhoods. The Queen's community was divided among three assembly districts and two Senate districts. So when we were looking at the maps of Little Manila, where all the businesses are, where the concentration of Filipinos lived, we saw that, for example, Philam Food Mart was in a different district than Amazing Grace, just one block away. If these businesses had an issue, for example, they couldn't go to the same leader and then easily One leader can just say, oh, it's not my responsibility, it's the other person's, and their voice politically is diluted. We try to make it as simple as possible that, number one, we are a real legitimate community of interest. We are important. Second, we should be together in the same district. We just want to go to one person who will actually take care of us and advocate for us. Putting the community in one district could bring the concrete change poetry wants. I'm so happy with the Mabuhay, the co-naming of the street. But will that deter anyone who wants to abuse us? She wants laws that send direct messages of protection and support, like those big signs on buses that warn riders about penalties for assaulting transit workers. There's a clear sign that don't assault an Asian. That's what I wanted. We need policy. A unified district could also help Stephen Raga win the assembly seat and become the first Filipino voted into office in New York that would help deliver policies for the community. But murals, monuments, and street signs matter to him too. I don't think of it as aesthetics. He says, though they love them, those markers aren't just for Filipinos. We don't need a sign that says Filipinos are here. We know where to go if we need food, when we need to send money anywhere. The non-Filipinos are the ones who should know. And that's really who the sign is for, to let them know that we're here. For the Queen's Memory Podcast, I'm Rosalind Tordesillas.
for listening to Making Contact in the Queen's Memory podcast. I'm Amy Gastelum. Stick around for a minute because we're going to hear from Natalie Milbrot. She is the director of the Queen's Memory Project. And she told me that the point of the podcast is to capture stories from Queens. Right now, it is the most diverse county in the U.S. So it's a really special place, but it's a very recent thing that we are this special place. And so um, we're changing. The neighborhoods change all the time. So we really want to actively be out there and just taking a snapshot of our neighborhoods to try to capture the rapid changes that are happening and um, capture people's really interesting stories. I mean, we have a lot of interviews with people who are really from all over the world. So it's a cool oral history collection. And the podcast is really a way that we um, can introduce people who aren't familiar with our collections to some of the voices that are in the oral history collections. And we know that a lot of people will never really do, you know, deep research, listening to full oral histories, which can often be, you know, an hour or two long and really be about a person's whole life history. But we know that um, by packaging these voices into a compelling Um, story that is a podcast episode that it's just much more appealing and exciting to listen to. And so it's really been our privilege to work over the past couple of years with professional media producers who have helped us to leverage existing interviews that are in our collections, but then also collect new interviews with us that then, you know, the full interview becomes part of our oral history collections, but then also we're producing this podcast. So the podcast covers several very different Asian communities, and they knew they needed to hire producers from the communities the project covers. So they wrote a grant. I'm astonished that it was funded because it was so ambitious. Um, (laughs) So we asked uh, for eight different uh, bilingual producers who were going to be able to produce episodes in eight different languages that are kind of the most spoken Asian languages in Queens. And we really wanted to be able to leverage people's um, not only language expertise, but also their insights into culture and community and um, their relationships with people who lived in Queens who were from these these different Asian American communities. And I think the result is just really special. And I can tell you that the team that was assembled to do this season was just outstanding. I mean, they were people who were all in it for the right reason. They were really excited about um, creating a, a meaningful record that was by Asian American communities for all of us, um, but but especially for communities themselves. And when we would do listening parties that came after the podcast, we found that community members were really moved and excited that the library had um, chosen to focus on their community and also to make an episode that was in their language. That's right. Each of the episodes is recorded in English and in a language that's used by the community being highlighted. And Rosalind's episode is a great example of um, of this work of, you know, community engagement. Season four of the show is going to be all about the environment. And since I lived in Queens, I can tell you that means water. In Queens, there are many low-lying areas. There are also lots of places in Queens that have been infilled, uh, wetlands, and then housing built on top of them. And so we really want to get into some stories with people who live in some of these impacted neighborhoods to hear about um, what their families have been experiencing. (music) 
Awesome. Is there anything else that you think we should know? Well, I'd like to just give credit to Melody Tao, who was our executive producer of season three, and also to Fei Yuan, who is the host, but she's also the curator of the Queen's Memory Project. And then also, I'd just like to say how much it means to all of us that we're going to be part of Making Contact. Thank you so much for selecting Rosalind's episode and um, including us in your wonderful series. We're really excited to have you and uh, looking forward to future uh, collaborations. Thanks. That's it for Making Contact today. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Amy Gastelum. We'll be right here for you next week. Until then.